0: Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians on the land in which I live, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. That's something we do here in Australia, giving some respect to the traditional owners of this land. My name is Bede Haynes, and this is the Australian and New Zealand Studies podcast, one of the channels on the New Books Network. Today. I'm interviewing James Keating, going over his book, Distant Sisters, Australasian Women and the International Struggle for the Vote, 1880-1914, published by Manchester University Press in 2020 in what is known as its Gender in History series. James lectures and tutors history at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, within the School of the Humanities and Languages. And before commencing at UNSW, James worked as a historian at the Office of Treatment Settlements in New Zealand, and he holds an MA from the Victoria University of Wellington and a PhD from the University of New South Wales. The book, Distant Sisters, offers a new history of the connections women in Australia and New Zealand made with one another and the rest of the world, first in their pioneer pursuit of the vote and then in their struggle to sell its merits overseas. Although the Australasian suffrage campaigns occurred side by side and shared a common commitment to international outreach, this book is the first to take these parallels seriously. Recovering a forgotten regional suffrage history, it uses their stories to explore the rise of suffrage internationalism in the late 19th century and importantly to chart its political geographic and racial limits it covers the period 1880 to 1914 so James thank you for joining us today
1: thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure to be here
0: I'd like to begin by asking how the world we live in turned out so that in 2020 James Keating came to have a book called distant sisters published
1: uh, how exactly the world turned out this way it's a it's a long and complicated trajectory and um, I think in terms of my own personal trajectory, I can begin there. Uh, I think that it's a case of being in the right place at the right time. So I grew up in New Zealand in the 1990s. Uh, in 1993 was the centenary of, of women's suffrage rights in New Zealand, which were won uh, for uh, Maori, uh, Indigenous New Zealand women, as well as Pākehā, European settler women at the same time in 1893. Uh, 1993 was a centenary uh, of of uh, women's parliamentary suffrage in New Zealand, and there was a real outpouring of uh, both academic and public history at that moment, and and the suffrage story became very ingrained in the sort of new New, new Zealand nationalism, and this new story New Zealand was telling about itself. So I grew up at a moment at which suffrage almost became part of the furniture in New Zealand. So if you look on the $10 note in New Zealand today, um, Kate Shepherd, who's one of the foundational figures, and that struggle features on the $10 note. And if you pay much attention to New Zealand politics at all, you'll, and Australian politics too, for that matter, you'll note that the uh, granting of suffrage to, to to women in New Zealand, all women in Australia, uh, white women, as, as I think we'll get on to, is one of the foundational stories the nation tells about itself. Um, those centenaries occurred between um, between. 1993 in New Zealand, all the way up to 2008 in Victoria, uh, and that that really gave, kind of gave gave time and space for me to come along and start to think about suffrage in a slightly different way, and to think about it uh, both beyond the nation. So between thinking about women in Australia and New Zealand, as well as to to uh, as well as I think to use. Uh, some of the new sources that have been digitised, uh, both in Australia and New Zealand and also internationally, to, to to write a slightly different history with slightly different concerns.
0: I'd like to work through a few terms, get your views on what they mean. I think that will assist in understanding the balance of this interview. First of all, I'd like to know if you perceive a difference between suffrage and having the franchise and what those differences might be or more broadly what those terms actually say
1: um, yeah thank you that's a good question um, I guess I'm this book is mostly concerned with with uh, parliamentary suffrage ie the right uh, to to cast a vote at general elections um, there are other definitions of suffrage people might use so uh, the right to vote uh, for school boards the right to vote for in municipal elections in particular but uh, I'm talking about uh, parliamentary, Parliamentary suffrage rights here. I think I use the word suffrage and franchise somewhat interchangeably. Uh, other people might might disagree with me, me doing that, um, but suffrage uh, is is the word that, uh, or or simply put, the right to vote that that the activists I'm writing about were using. So they refer to themselves as suffragists, as opposed to to suffragettes, which is is the popular term that was developed by the Daily Mail to talk about in condescending terms about uh, women who who began to use militant tactics in Britain in the early 20th century. So I, I prefer the term suffragist.
0: Right. Now, I'd like to run through a list of types of activity which may restrict a person's ability at least to have one vote for one voice and just see how you... The book doesn't actually always cover these, but I'd like to understand get your understanding of how this can be thought of as part of the family of suffrage-type issues in the society. So I'll, I'll, I'll run through them and let you speak. The ones I have on my list here are gerrymandering, age, when why why should a person who's 16 not be able to vote, ethnicity or heritage, how that can be used, religion, citizenship, class, punishment with prisoners, how things like a two-party political system could empower or disempower a voter, political advertising, the influence of donations. These are the types of things. And compulsory voting, giving rise to what we call in Australia the donkey vote, where someone might just start just number of ballot form from the top of the form downwards and not actually think about what they're doing. But if someone's compelled to vote, as we are here, in some ways that disenfranchises someone who actually thinks about voting, I'd like your views on how they sit within the concept of suffrage.
1: Yeah, so the, 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 there's a lot in that list, a lot to um, to, to run through. Um, and I, th- I think some some of these uh, some of these restrictions uh, speak to, to some of the concerns in this book a little more than others. But I guess to use the comparison between somewhere like Australia and New Zealand, in both places, one of the reasons why the campaign for women's parliamentary suffrage is won relatively quickly is because universal manhood suffrage... Has already been granted. Although in Australia, as we note, this is the, the word "universal" is, is restricted by by um, by race in, in some colonies and not others. Uh, so, unlike in Britain, where women are fighting for the vote at the same time as working class men are still excluded from voting, that campaign obviously takes much longer. Um, so, the suffrage these women were fighting for uh, was an adult suffrage. Um, in Australia, as we know, uh, the w- uh, women are granted the right to vote and stand for federal parliament in 1902, uh, which is one year after the Commonwealth is, of Australia is formed from from the the, seven col- the six colonies, I should say. Um, but in one of the founding injustices of Australian uh, political life, that right to vote is restricted uh, to is a restricted on racial lines. So what it means to be an Australian citizen is that in that moment shifts from a gendered citizenship, so to be a man is to be a citizen, uh, and people will commonly say, well, men have to serve and, uh, in overseas wars and defend the nation, therefore they're entitled to vote, and that's changed to a, citizenship becomes a racial category. To be white is, is essentially to be an Australian citizen. Um, and the suffragists uh, were not passive bystanders in this racial construction. They often used, they often drew a lot, On racial arguments themselves in order to suggest that white women deserved the vote as opposed to undeserving uh, men of colour in some cases. Um, So uh, some of the other categories here, so things like the disenfranchisement of prisoners, uh, the suffragists that I I write about weren't particularly concerned by that, but one of the things that that tells us is that suffrage is still a right that has some restrictions, um, depending on uh, if you're you've committed certain crimes, that right to suffrage has been removed. I know in New Zealand one of the things that's happening at the moment is that there's a move to, to enfranchise some, some prisoners again and to kind of expand the franchise in that way. Um, what you note about the party system is very interesting. Um, of course, one of the things that happens and one of the things we might get to is that even though um, women in a place like South Australia, for example, they win the right to vote and the right to stand for parliament at the same time, Women in New Zealand had deliberately not advocated for the right to stand to Parliament because they believed it might be perceived as too radical and they believed their chances of winning the vote were greater if they took what was called the half-loaf, so suffrage rights without the right to stand for Parliament. Women in South Australia don't have this problem, but it takes until 1959 for them to enter Parliament. And this is for a number of of reasons. Uh, Firstly... uh, Suffrage movements in Australia and New Zealand are coalitions of, of women of different classes and different interests. Uh, after winning the votes, they they split apart and begin to pursue sexual interests, whether that be uh, Christian interests in the prohibition of uh, alcohol and intoxicants. Uh, some of them revert to class lines, so obviously middle-class women and working-class women have different concerns. Um, and political parties themselves often take women's support for granted and and don't place them in winnable seats. And women who decide to stand for parliament outside of the party system, I think in Australia, the most famous example is uh, Vida Goldstein uh, in Victoria, who stands for, um, she stands for the Senate twice, and I think the House of Representatives three times in Victoria. Because she's standing outside the party system, she's never able to gain enough votes in order to to win a seat in parliament. Um,
0: Thank you. Now turning turning our attention more toward your book, one thing I gleaned from reading the book is that it seems to me that suffrage is treated as a privilege but not a right, and that those who don't actually have it, they are the ones who need to fight or lobby to become enfranchised. I want to try and understand why some groups were left out from the very beginning. For example, why did it ever come to happen that women couldn't vote? Where did that notion even come from in our ancestors so that there's this position that women just can't vote and for a while that just seems normal, probably for a long while?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. I guess the short answer would be uh, the existence of, of, of patriarchy in Western society. So I think that um, if you look at a country like Britain with a very slow expansion of voting rights, voting rights were – Traditionally linked to property ownership and property rights, and women are excluded from this because, for a long time, uh, they were excluded from owning property. So either they, uh, women were were daughters of fathers who held those property rights, and and if they they managed to accrue their own. Um, their own property or capital, if you like, that are automatically transferred to the husband upon marriage. There are obviously exceptions to this. So there are women in, in the past who did have power, who did own property, but they were still prevented from voting. Um, what happens in the 19th century is you see uh, in a place like Australia, the fairly uh, voting rights are initially restricted to property owners. I don't have the, the exact restrictions on the top of my head, but either to men who owned property or men who paid rent to a certain value we're we're allowed to vote. And the idea is that this uh, promotes stability in various ways. It also upholds entrenched interests because, obviously, if everyone can vote, people are not necessarily going to vote for politicians who will prioritise the interests of of the few instead of the many, if you like. Um, Before the suffrage campaigns really take off in earnest in an organised way in Australia and New Zealand, there are campaigns to... Uh, for married women's property rights, for example, to allow married women to have some control over their own property. Um, those campaigns are, are, are won in the 1870s and 1880s, which, again, creates an impetus to push forward from those property rights to um, to, to, to voting rights, if you like. Um, as we've already touched on, one of the other major restrictions uh, in Australia and to a lesser extent in New Zealand is, is along racial lines... Um, So in New Zealand, Māori women's enfranchisement was never contested in 1893 because Māori men had already been granted the right to the vote much earlier. Uh, This is perhaps less a product of the New Zealand settlers' racial enlightenment and more a product of of, uh, Māori strength within the country. So this is a country the New Zealand wars are fought in the 1850s. And in that moment, a series of Indigenous or Māori seats are set up, Indigenous electorates um, are set up. So because all Māori men are enfranchised, um, Māori women's enfranchisement is not contested in 1893. I should also note that the suffrage movements in Australia and New Zealand were mostly um, composed of white settler women who uh, were not particularly welcoming to Indigenous women uh, and did not particularly advocate for their rights. In New Zealand, these rights were taken for granted, and what happens is after Indigenous women are granted the right to vote in 1893, uh, white women's organisations suddenly start to take them much more seriously because uh, there are votes to mobilise. So the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which is one of the key organisations that advocates for the vote across Australia and New Zealand, uh, it starts to mobilise Māori women in New Zealand as, as... as a political force to achieve their goal of um, prohibiting the sale of intoxicants.
0: I'd also like to understand the book begins in the late 19th century, and Australia at that time was a number of colonies. It wasn't federated until 1900. What actually gave an individual within a colony, it may be different across different colonies, but broadly speaking what did a person need to do and what was the typical profile of someone who would have the right to cast a vote at that time?
1: Uh, So this is before women's suffrage has been granted? Yes. Uh, So it it varies from colony to colony. Um, I think, as I mentioned a little earlier, initially it is uh, uh, males who own property to a certain value and over the course of the 19th century we see that that property value required to vote diminishes and diminishes and diminishes. Uh, and also there's there's rights for if you rent property to a certain value, you're able to vote too. Um, so between, uh, in most colonies ac- across Australasia, by about the 1870s, man- manhood suffrage has become universal uh, for white men. In Australia, in some colonies, Indigenous men are able to vote as well, although these voting rights are sometimes restricted by... by um, Bureaucracy and by custom, as opposed to to by law, um, and one of the arguments, essentially, that women make for their own enfranchisement in the colonies is that uh, one one of the great fears that settlers have is is uh, uprootedness or, or movement, if you like. So th- they argued that actually uh, enfranchising women will uh, support social cohesion in the colonies because. Unlike transient men who move from place to place and are a disruptive influence, uh, they're arguing from uh, a kind of a separate spheres ideology, which is that women will support the power of the home, the power of the settlement, and they will uh, increase social cohesion within the colonies if they're able to vote.
0: As I was reading chapter one of your book, I got the impression that societal conditions tended to cultivate different suffragist cultures themselves. And the book begins with a list of abbreviations that names quite a lot, as I found, of different organisations with different, I imagine, different societal goals. Could you let me know what some of the examples of those cultures and movements were?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I, I think that that's a, an astute observation. So I'll, I'll run through some of them. Um, so the book is obviously a book that links... Um, It tries to take a kind of a telescopic approach and link the lived experience of women's lives in in colonial towns with uh, big international organisations. I might start with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, as I mentioned them already. It's uh, an organisation that develops in the American Midwest uh, in 1872, 1873 out of the Women's Crusade, which is a movement, essentially a kind of uh, a public movement of women going from bar to bar and trying to drag men out of bars and to shame men into into reforming their drinking habits um it develops as an american national organization up into the mid-1880s under the leadership of a woman called francis willard who's incredibly charismatic leader who who turns into an almost saintly figure within the organization bearing in mind this this is a protestant organization um, and In 1885, 1886, they send out their first round-the-world missionary, uh, a woman called Mary Clement Levitt, who travels first to Hawaii and then to uh, New Zealand and then Australia, and and seeding local branches of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Um, So as their name implies, they're concerned with, uh, in New Zealand and Australia, they become concerned with expanding women's uh, political rights as a way of uh, meeting their ultimate goal, which was uh, the reformation of society through the prohibition of uh, alcohol and intoxicants, particularly things like opium. Some of the other groups, the other internet, the other big international groups, I talk about are the International Council of Women, or the I.C.W., which was founded in 1888. It was envisaged as an international suffrage organisation, although it quickly becomes a broad umbrella organisation that that has aspirations of representing all the women, and it it starts to insists that anti-suffragists are included within its uh, within the organisation too. This uh, angers more radical women, who in nineteen o two set up the International Women's Suffrage Alliance, uh, which is an organisation that's devoted uh, explicitly to to winning women's voting rights around the world. And the Australian connection there is that the Victorian Vita Goldstein is at the inaugural meeting in Washington DC, and she becomes the organisation's first secretary. And while she's on that international trip, she learns via mail, obviously, that she has become an enfranchised woman in Australia with the passage of the Commonwealth Franchise Act in 1902.
0: Thank you. With those different groups, another thing that occurred to me when reading the book was that they all had the overarching goal that the end of their action would be that women, but not all women, if we've learned, would end up with the vote. But there seems to, at least to me, to be some different reasons for that between each group. So, for example, if we think about the Women's Christian Temperance Union, one question I wanted to ask was, from reading your book, there was a concern amongst the women within that group about social issues, often within the home, gambling, alcoholism, things which could affect women, could affect children. So that wasn't – so how – for them, how did voting – how was voting going to attack that? And secondly, that seems to be – it seems as though getting the vote must have had some – they must have thought getting the vote would give them the ability to achieve their agenda. But that wasn't – the. so it's not necessarily the case of let's get the vote because women deserve the vote. It's rather we have an agenda about temperance and fixing things in the home – and one way to achieve that is getting the vote. And I can imagine that might be very different for other organisations who might have had a more different reason for why women should have the vote at all, irrespective of what their actual agenda was.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So to speak about the Women's Christian Temperance Union, they did... um, I think that none of the groups I really talk about were interested in voting rights as the be-all and end-all. All All of them saw the voting rights as, as a tool through which they could achieve other ends. Um... So uh, to use the example of uh, New Zealand and South Australia, which is uh, two of the places alongside New South Wales I focus on most in the book, um, the Women's Christian Temperance Union alone is not enough to to win the vote, particularly uh, in order to attract working-class women who are are vital in the petitioning efforts uh, and vital in mobilising large quantities of women to sign petitions, which in New Zealand is one of the chief strategies of winning the vote. They need to mobilise working-class women To those women, temperance is not often seen as the most important goal. Um, And one of the other things I should note is that Women's Christian Temperance Union becomes particularly focused on the vote in Australia and New Zealand, but in the United States and Britain, its manifestations are not so much focused on the vote, and this becomes a contentious issue when Women's Christian Temperance Union Temperance Union members from Australia and New Zealand go overseas, they find that actually the union means different things in different places. So one of the things, it's very adaptable. And one of the reasons for this is that separate suffrage organizations are much more established in Britain and the United States. Um, and their, the particular Australasian version of the Women's Christian Temperance Union is much more expansive uh, than, than it had been in the United States. Um Other groups are much more interested in uh, equal pay, uh, liberalizing divorce law, ending the marriage bar. Uh, Middle-class women, uh, particularly in places like Sydney where we are now, um, are interested in expanding women's access to professions. So uh, professions like the law, for example. So um, there are a wide range of different goals. Although what unites uh, what unites most of these women at least is the sense that the vote itself is both uh, necessary from uh, the point of view of democracy and equality, but also it's a necessary tool to achieve reforms. And these reforms range from uh, moral, social, political and economic, depending on uh, the aims of each particular group.
0: And one final question about the... Women's Christian Temperance Union or the Christian Temperance Unions was I'm reminded of those types of biblical verses. You often hear things like wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord and those type of biblical directions that you often, or at least I often hear or other, he discussed. And was there any internal conflict, do you think, within these organizations that, women having the vote somehow might have conflicted with their Christian beliefs.
1: Yeah, there there, there is actually a lot of internal conflict. So uh, the the Women's Christian Temperance Union is kind of guided by two maxims in this period. One is this idea of home protection, so this idea that the goal of the union is to protect the home from some of the the various ailments you mentioned earlier. And the other one is uh, its American leader, Francis Willard's idea of do everything, and over the course of the late 19th century and the early 20th, well, uh, up until her death in the late 19th century, she gradually expands to everything to to become a fairly advanced Christian socialist agenda over which there's increasing uh, conflict. And there's a couple of examples of this playing out in the book. Uh, I'll give one Australian example and one international example. So the Australian example is the Australian uh, Women's Christian Temperance Union leader, Elizabeth Nichols, a South Australian spends much of the late 19th century the 1890s constantly traversing Australia on these trips which are both intended to support federation um, because she believes that federation is the chance the best chance for women to achieve this ideal of a Christian nation free from alcohol and intoxicants Uh, and so she's constantly traveling across Australia from colonial cities to small country towns and she's she's traveling on her own um she has a husband back in South Australia. And within the union itself, there's a kind of a sort of nervousness about this. So people are always joking about the fact that if, if on the stage she mentioned that her husband Alfred is back home in, in, in Adelaide, there are kind of jokes from the audience about it. The audience are constantly thanking Alfred for his generosity and allowing Elizabeth to travel across uh, Australia. We should note that Alfred was was a very firm supporter of Nicoll's work, and, and critics, um, ma- mostly male critics of Nichols, uh, are, are making snide jokes in the press about the fact that she's, uh, quote-unquote, wearing the trousers, if you like. So, and ultimately, this does come to a head within the union, and her tenure ends uh, in 1903, I think, at a Women's Christian Temperance Union uh, National Conference, where she's replaced by uh, a, a Tasmanian called Jessie Rook. And Rook, before accepting the presidency, uh, from Nichols, who was also contesting it, says that she has to wait from a t- a, from a, for a telegram from her husband in order to accept the presidency. And there's this moment, which would have been very galling to Nichols, I think, whereby uh, they elect Rook as the new president, but they have to wait for several hours for a telegram from, from Rook's husband, allowing her to take the presidency, with the proviso that she never has to leave uh, Launceston. So there was there's a kind of a tension within the union between the stability of the home and the fact that it's a missionary organisation that is based on these kind of uh, feats of travelling missionaries. And why Nichols proved so challenging is because she's, unlike most of these missionaries, she's a married woman with children. Um, To use the international example I mentioned, um, from between 1887 and 1892, Francis Willard, who's based in, in Chicago uh, authorises the building of uh, a large office building in the centre of, of Chicago called the Woman's Temple. And this is seen by her critics as a kind of a, a sign that she's outstepped uh, the, the middle-class focus on home and family to which the union was based. So Willard's idea was that she describes it, I think I've got the quote somewhere in the book, that the temple would be the union's uh, Westminster Abbey and West Point and Goldmine all in one. So it would both function as a school for sending these missionaries around the world. They would collect rents, which would fund this operation. And it would also serve as a kind of a a grand gesture that the Women's Christian Temperance Union belonged in the heart of commercial Chicago. What happens is that the building runs into financial difficulties, and as soon as Willard dies in 1897, the union immediately divests itself of the building and returns to a, a much more narrow focus. So these, there's this constant tension between, we might call them liberals or radicals within the Christian Temperance Union, who have a kind of a Christian socialist vision, and and conservatives who have a much more traditional notion of of a woman's uh, place in society. Both groups think that the vote is important, but they have different goals and ambitions. And over the the time span of this book, those those contradictions play out in interesting ways. I think.
0: And when anyone has the chance to look at this book, there is a picture of that building in Chicago, and it seems an incredibly impressive building for a group like this to have constructed. Now, one thing that grated to my ears when reading through this book was that certain people were excluded from being able to vote based on things such as ancestry, heritage, or skin colour. And we've, we've touched on that. But one thing that seems strange to me is it seems that that omission might not have been obvious to the people at the time. It was hidden in plain sight, as the cliche goes. I'd like to ask you about that. And one example I would also like you to comment on, later in the book, you refer to a lady called Louisa Lawson. And she's working for this magazine, I think it was called Dawn. And I'm going to ask a few questions about those magazines later or news bulletins later. In any case... Louisa Lawson in 1897 reminds missionaries who were going overseas bound for Asia it says that Aboriginal women deserved the first claim upon our beneficence and then despite her insistence that what women had a duty to honour their womanhood as we honour our own and there was also a reference to people stealing the country from the Aboriginal people but then it's there doesn't seem to be much – no one else seems to really talk about that in these publications, and you even say it doesn't really come up again until 1900 when Louisa Lawson makes another comment on it, but this time it's it has much less fire in it. It's just about she requests the best droll saying by an Australian Aboriginal rather than reminding people about stolen land. Can you comment on that?
1: Yeah, so I think the reason why I inserted those two quotes is – is to kind of note the, su- the surprising radicalism of, of Lawson's statement about Australian women's uh, duties with with that kind of later turn to the, a usual set of racist tropes. Um, so one of the things I note in this book uh, is that uh, a lot of the people I write about end up travelling to the United States, uh, people like Catherine Helen Spence, the South Australian uh, reformer and, and feminist, Vita uh, Goldstein, as I've mentioned, um, Elizabeth Nichols does not travel to the US, but she travels to Edinburgh, where she uh, works alongside uh, an African-American woman from Louisiana. And what's common is that encounters with African-American women and their struggles in the United States, uh, another woman, Wilhelmina Sheriff-Bain from New Zealand, makes the same point, engender a kind of a sense of solidarity with those struggles. But they are universally unable to kind of transpose that sense of racial solidarity with uh, racial injustices going on in Australia and New Zealand. Um, Nichols, again, is a good example. So she spends most of the 1890s travelling across Australia, and she writes these exhaustive travel accounts in, in the WCTU's magazine, Our Federation. And what's clear if you read them is that she never mentions an Indigenous person ever, and... This kind of corresponds with with white settler strategies of rendering the Australian landscape empty, therefore justifying uh, settler expansion. Um, so sometimes I an example of the ways in which suffragists deployed race in New South Wales would be that uh, some Indigenous men were able to vote in New South Wales in the 1890s and Rose Scott and the Womanhood Suffrage League constantly make the point that how come... Uh, what they refer to as black fellows are able to vote, but white women are unable to vote. So they, they're they're kind of deploying um, race as... A, they're calling for white racial solidarity as a reason to enfranchise uh, white women. I think what unites uh, all of these women is that they're all settler colonists uh, who are unable to see, unable to see themselves as uh, racial oppressors, if you like. Uh, so when they... Enc- Nichols is interesting because, at the same time as she's carefully excluding any mention of Indigenous people from from her tours across our uh, country, Australia, she also celebrates the WCTU as an example of racial solidarity in practice. Uh, Australia is unusual uh, in the fact that, uh, so in New Zealand, Maori women are included within the WCTU, often within separate Maori branches. Uh, in other parts of the world, the WCTU um, is is. Complicated because it's both a critic of some of the excesses of colonialism, at the same time as it's as a beneficiary of colonialism. So it um, it thrives uh, in in what we might call the British world and the British Empire. So places uh, uh, British India, for example, and it includes um, women of colour in its activism, uh, n- never as as leaders, but. Nichols, despite celebrating this, is unable to see the fact that it's incongruous that the WCTU does not include uh, Indigenous women at the centre of its own activism in Australia. Uh, And we might see that the decision to enfranchise uh, white women and to disenfranchise all Indigenous people in Australia, not to be surprising once we see that uh, the suffragists either tacitly or overtly used those own logics and their own campaigns. One interesting
0: aspect of the book is these women you've been speaking of left these countries in the Southern Hemisphere and endured travelling over to the Northern Hemisphere to meet and discuss these matters. It seems, and I'd like you to comment on this, that the way in which these people were treated, and I'm thinking of Catherine Spence and and Kate Shepard or two, some notes I've made about, was that, the way in which their their achievements or women's achievements to be to get the vote was treated by those overseas seems a little bit unusual to me. For example, they're often referred to as being of interest to people in in Britain because these were social experiments, and people were somehow interested in what would happen in these old colonies to these, or well, they will probably still colonies then. In some cases, to these women or to these democracies where these women were able to get the vote. Another thing, another issue I noted was there seems to have been a notion that a sort of myth that the that when women did get the vote, it was just gifted to them by the men rather than being fought for. I think there's an example you give in New Zealand where that was a common characteristic, common understanding. The myth of the New Zealand government gifting the vote to women without actual pressure or activism from women and there also seems to have been an idea that giving the Maori women the vote was in some ways a mistake because it was given it would just show well they, they're giving these the only reason these people get the vote is because they have a, they have a lack of a proper education and they're not they don't come from cosmopolitan cities who else would you give the vote to just give it to anyone down there it doesn't really matter. Could you comment on that?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, there's a lot there. Um, I think that, so the book starts uh, with a set of declarations that um, the suffragists make between 1893 and 1908 that uh, it starts with this moment whereby uh, uh, they celebrate their pioneer victories by making explicit their claims about leading the world. So the idea is that they're not just winning the vote for their own benefit, but... They feel indebted to women, particularly uh, in, in Britain and the United States, and they feel indebted to those women. And there's a sense that suffrage internationalism behooves them to, to carry on the struggle in other places. Um, both uh, Kate Shepherd and Catherine Spence find that they're much, uh, particularly Spence, finds that she's much better received in the United States than she is in Britain. Um, so Spence uh, travels to the United States, um, in 1893, she's in her mid-60s, and she spends an entire year travelling across the US and, and making making a living as a journalist and a lecturer. Uh, she lectures a lot on proportional representation, uh, on, on what she calls the boarding out system, so uh, systems of uh, fostering children rather than putting them in state institutions. And she increasingly lectures on suffrage because... Uh, being a suffrage speaker in the US at this point in time is still a viable career so speakers are paid unlike in Australia and New Zealand and she goes to Britain and she talks about finding herself strangely unable to speak there uh, Shepard finds the same thing so she uh, she's of Scottish ancestry uh, she grew up partly in Liverpool and she she moved to New Zealand as a settler after winning the vote in 1893 no in, in 1893 sorry in 1894 and 5 Shepard Uh, travels back to the UK. And this this is often framed as a triumphal tour, if you like, of her going back and selling suffrage to the British and and teaching them a lesson. What happens there is is she, she finds that British women she meets are friendly, but there's a sense that she's tainted by a certain kind of colonial naivete. And the problem she has is that to the British, she doesn't seem much like a suffragist. So there's these two moments which As someone who who finds public speaking to be difficult, I very much sympathise with. There's a moment on on, uh, the stage in front of over a 1,000 people at the Queen's Hall in London in which this is one of her first public appearances in London. She appears with the the former New Zealand Prime Minister and the chief parliamentary campaigner for women's suffrage, Sir John Hall, and reports variously suggest that her voice was inaudible, and she suffers a kind of a breakdown upon the stage, A second breakdown occurs about a year later at the World's Women Christian Temperance Union Conference in London, and there's this paradox she suffers where she's unable to exemplify the virtues of New Zealand women's suffrage from the stage. She's unable to speak to large audiences. So she's unable to combat the the gift narrative, which is propagated by people like the New Zealand Agent General in London, a man called William Pember Reeves, who's whose book State, State Experiments in Australia and New Zealand explicitly frames suffrage as a gift given by beneficent liberal politicians like him to women rather than uh, a right that that woman had to fight organised campaigns for. And so Shepard is unable to use her speech to com- to combat that narrative. And, and this is kind of how the gift narrative propagates is that uh, Pember Reeves' book is not actually that popular in Australia and New Zealand, but it sells incredibly well in... Britain and the United States. And Reeves himself becomes um, the first head of the London School of Economics, uh, a very influential figure within uh, the Fabian School in London. And and Reeves is, Reeves's Reeves's uh, articulation is the one that's allowed to live, despite suffragists using various kinds of media, their own publications, um, writing for magazines, uh, writing news articles. Uh, and in fact, Shepard herself commissions a man who would later become her husband to write a book, a man called William Sidney Smith, outlining the struggle to to combat the gift narrative. But it takes until the 1970s and the emergence of, of women's liberation and, and women's history in Australia and New Zealand for the gift narrative to finally be put to rest.
0: I'd like you to comment now on the publications that you run through. There were a lot of women's advocacy newspapers published between 1888 and 1910. And one thing that surprised me about these was that they weren't particularly long, most of them. Some of them might only be one or two pages long. And the print runs were quite small. Some only had circulations of a few few hundred subscribers and some only had a few thousand. So I'd like to understand the influence those publications had and their purpose and whether they were preaching to the choir or whether they actually went further and would draw in people who didn't think themselves aligned with this cause to only become aligned with the cause.
1: Yeah, so I think one of the chapters of the book really focuses on the suffrage press. I think what's interesting about it to me is that, just as you note, the sheer number of newspapers, Australia and New Zealand had much higher rates of newspaper publication than than Britain did at this moment. Um, As you note, these, these publications are often... Uh, quite small, I think. Although Dawn is perhaps an exception, Louisa Lawson's Dawn is is much longer. It's more of a a magazine than a newspaper. The print runs are often quite short. Some of the money lasts for a couple of years. Uh, I think they exist for a number of reasons. One is to uh, report on the activities, uh, the ambitions, the desires of suffragists in a way that wasn't accessible in other forms of media, which would report on suffrage meetings but would not report sympathetically on, on suffragists or give them um, enough space for them to, to, to document these ambitions and desires. So a newspaper exists to bring movements together. In Australia and New Zealand, they're important because uh, suffragists are, are scattered, in, uh, particularly in New Zealand, I think, where suffragists are scattered between a range of towns. There's no one hub uh, for the movement, if you like, Um and as well, the, these newspapers exist to disseminate news of uh, events, activities, ideas from Australia and New Zealand to the rest of the world. So this is a moment in which the scissors and paste system of journalism is still very much in effect, whereby um, each newspaper often has a list of about 50 newspapers where they share free copies of, they cut and paste different p- news items from those newspapers into their own publications. So uh, by reporting, say, uh an example of a newspaper like uh, uh, Dawn, for example, in Sydney, by reporting on women's suffrage activities in Sydney, it's also being extracted and clipped and reported on in women's newspapers across the world. So it's both, it's communicating with uh, different audiences at the same time. It's, I guess it creates an, an imagined community, uh, to use that Benedict Anderson phrase, around the movement itself. So uh, these newspapers both Uh, allow women who don't necessarily see prominent suffrage leaders, someone like a Rose Scott in New South Wales or a Kate Shepard in New Zealand, that that there is a community of interests here. These newspapers are often read aloud and shared at at meetings, so even though their print runs were small, they had a much wider circulation informally, and they exist to share news of... uh, Suffrage and and women's struggles in Australia and New Zealand to to newspapers across the world uh, through this scissors and paste system. Um, And one of the things that I found in this book is that these newspapers circulated in a Tasman market. So um, there were New Zealand subscribers to newspapers from uh, New South Wales uh, and Victoria. There were Australian subscribers, slightly less actually, to New Zealand women's newspapers. And I think. One of the things I do um, is I break these newspapers down by content as well to see where the news was actually coming from and to kind of trace the contours of internationalism, if you like. So one of the things we see is that uh, a kind of a a village and globe approach uh, is perpetuated whereby there's lots of news about uh, the places a newspaper is from. So uh, Prohibitionist, which is one of them in um, Christchurch in New Zealand, focuses a lot on Christchurch. Uh, not that much on the rest of New Zealand and news particularly from the United States and Britain. The same is true of somewhere, uh, Dawn in New South Wales, Australian Women's Fair in uh, Melbourne. Um, and also the, the limits of this the Australasian suffrage world. I talk about are quite clear. And these limits are based on who else has a newspaper, really. So New Zealand, South Australia, um, Queensland, not so much, actually. Uh, New South Wales, Victoria... These kind of eastern colonies, if you like, are at the centre of this world, and places without a woman's newspaper almost entirely ignored, so Western Australia, Queensland, uh, Tasmania. Um, And and I try to qualify some exuberant claims about the internationalism of these these papers that some people make. So one of the things that you often see in in each of these newspapers is a kind of a a composite column which includes little snippets and little references of, of kind of positive stories about women across the world. Uh, they're often given titles like Chit Chat or, or From Here and There. And th- these are often kind of deracinated stories which uh, speak to women's achievements in various places, but often out of context, if you like. And they wouldn't necessarily given have given readers a kind of a global sense of... of uh the fortunes uh prospects and ambitions of of organized women in different parts of the world um and of course one of the things that hinders these women i'm writing about and and me one of the things that hinders my own research a little bit which i'm a little embarrassed to say is is language so uh most of the women i talk about with few exceptions were were monoglot they were mostly english speakers so there's stories of them exchanging newspapers with uh, elizabeth nichols exchanges Newspapers with uh, a Norwegian uh, woman's newspaper called Det Vitband which I think means the white ribbon in Norwegian. And she kind of notes a bit dryly that she's unable to read the newspaper. So she can't share news from Norway in her own uh, newspaper because she can't read it. And she asks if any of her own readers are able to translate for her. Uh, so one of the limitations is, of course, uh, you have to be able to, to, to read French, German, Italian, Uh, if you want to include news from those places in any kind of systemic way.
0: Two questions to finish up. The first is, as a historian, I'd like to get some understanding from you as to how you get a sense of the day-to-day lives of the people you're writing about and their movements. You have the written records but how do you take the further step of actually understanding how life was like? We're talking 100 years ago. How do you delve into that detail?
1: That, that, it's a very tricky question. I think that there's a couple of ways about it. One is, is to, to read as much about a period that other historians have written and, and try and immerse myself in that period. I think that's the rise of, of digitized newspapers has been both a blessing and a curse, a blessing in the sense that we can find out so much more about people, particularly women. One of the things you can do now is, is you can uh, find a name and and search around and then find both a first and the last name, which is not as easy as you might think. Um, but at the same time, I think it's, it's perhaps made people a little less attentive to archival records. So one of the things I really try and do in this book is to, conjure up everyday experiences of internationalism. And where you find these is through the records uh, and minutes of organisations like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, like the Womanhood Suffrage League in New South Wales. Every meeting is reported on in detail. These are obviously uh, reductive written accounts of ephemeral conversations, but they bu- they build up and accrete a sense of, of, of the daily aspects of, it, of suffrage internationalism. Uh, so... Some newspapers published reading lists of books they were recommending people read within the Women's Christian Temperance Union. There were everyday aspects of internationalism, so they had a thing called the Noontide Prayer Hour. The idea is that the world would be constantly encircled by women praying at a certain hour of the day. Um, Shared rituals like reading uh, literature aloud. Um, Also, uh, they would often read the same scripture passages at the same time of year. Uh, They would sing the same songs at the... um, And also, one of the other ways you can trace it is is things through the collection exchange of photographs as kind of material signifiers of internationalism. Um, But also, there there are limits to this too. So, um, none of the women I wrote about kept a detailed diary. Uh, When I was talking about Shepard's, these two instances of her breakdown on the stage, um... With Shepard, it's a bit more complicated because I understand that there are some personal papers which the family have not released, but uh, I don't know exactly how she felt about that. I can only try and empathise as much as possible one understanding that the experience of being uh, a, a, a white middle-class woman from New Zealand in the 1890s is, is quite removed from my own. Um, but I guess the goal is to, is to read as far as the documents allow you and then... There is a kind of an imaginative leap you have to take. Uh, as uh, recent historians of African American women like Sadia Hartman have shown, this leap is is much more necessary for some women than for others. So I am lucky in that there is actually a real wealth of information for me to go on. Um, so someone like Catherine Spence, uh, she constantly sort of goes goes over and over again her her United States tour. Both actually, she does have a diary, which is lucky. But she she writes letters to other women about it ten years later, and, and she might have changed some of the details. But there's a real wealth of documents that I can extrapolate out from, and I think combining organisational minutes, uh, personal letters, newspapers together, you can you can approximate a certain sense of what what daily life was. But I think it's important uh, that I'm aware that there are some aspects of, of of these lives that might be quite difficult for me to understand, uh, too. And I hope I haven't overstretched the limits in the book. And finally,
0: James, could you please let us know what projects you are now working on?
1: Um, yeah, right now I'm working on several projects, actually. So the first is is extending some of the arguments in this book in a different way. One of the arguments in this book is, I think, the, the the two overarching arguments in this book are: the first is an attempt to look at uh, the dynamics of this emerging international feminist movement from the perspective of of people from a, a geographically marginal, although ideologically influential region, Australia and New Zealand, and the second goal of the book is to decenter the way that the nation has has kind of dominated suffrage history in Australia and New Zealand. So my, one of the one of the things I'm working on is thinking about Dora Meeson Coates' famous Trust the Woman banner, which was purchased by the Australian uh, Federal Parliament in eight, 1988 and hangs there now. And the very fact of that purchase has kind of made it an Australian artefact, even though, as I argue, Meeson Coates spent most of her youth and kind of formative years as an artist and an suffrage activist in New Zealand, and then spent most of her adulthood in Britain, and trying to think about her as an Australasian figure rather than an Australian figure, what that does. My second bigger project is uh, focusing on the 20th century, particularly an international feminist group called Equal Rights International, and the influence of uh, a Sydney group called the United Associations of Women uh, within Equal Rights International, and this particularly the promotion of an Australian idea of incomes for wives internationally. Incomes for or wages for housework is commonly understood as as one of the mainstays of women's liberation in the nineteen seventies. But my new project is about thinking about earlier manifestations, arguments for economic payment for uh, for wives uh, and mothers. Uh, who should who should pay for this labor? And these early arguments about putting an economic value on women's domestic labor as a way of uh, giving it value within capitalist economies, and how these ideas developed in a particular way in Sydney and Australia and how women like Linda Littlejohn and Jessie Street sold them abroad in in the 1930s and 1940s.
0: Thank you, James. Thank you for your time. This has been the Australian and New Zealand Studies Channel, a podcast on the New Books Network. And today we have had an engaging conversation with James Keating concerning his book, Distant Sisters: Australasian Women and the International Struggle for the Vote, eighteen eighty to nineteen fourteen, from Manchester University Press, and I understand it's still forthcoming, but it should be published relatively soon. Thank you very much, James. Speak to you soon.
1: Um, slight correction: it is it is out now. Uh, it came out, I, I think, possibly at the end of September. So, uh, yeah. Do do, uh, ask your library to buy it or check it out if you can. And thanks again, Bede, for taking the time. I really enjoyed it.